All right, so Ephesians 5 is where we're at, and uh, I've titled it Walking, Discerning, and Submitting, and so got a three, three aspects that we might get to, and it's one of the, you know, these are one of those like, we might be able to finish, but I just probably, <laughs> probably with the timing and all that, we'll probably just make this, uh, this one more week, because there's just a lot of, a lot of things to kind of pull out and draw upon. Um, so last time when we looked at part one, you know, we kind of said that as followers of Christ, our actions speak loudly. And to, to be able to discern the will of God and not be swept away by the temptations of our culture, we looked at a few aspects that Paul had brought up. You know, we must submit to the Holy Spirit and to one another in love. Again, this is kind of building off of what we looked at in Philippians 2, when we humble ourselves and look at others as um, uh, you know, more highly esteemed than ourselves. And so, what does that look like? And Paul, again, writing the letters uh, not only to the Philippians and the Ephesians, but also the Colossians, and we're going to look at some, some verses from there as well, um, all were written while he was in prison. So, the themes that he's writing to these different churches are similar because as he is away from them, he wants them, again, to be united. And so how do we achieve this unity, and what are specific things that we can do to help foster this? So just kind of as a review, uh, we'll read uh, verses 11 through 21, and then uh, look at a couple, a couple of the last things that we looked at just to kind of pull us in and, and draw us into um, uh, the rest of our study today. So verse 11 in chapter 5 says, Take no part in the unfruitful, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, so one of the things that we looked at uh, was Paul's admonition to make the best use of our time. Literally, that is to buy up the season. Um, it's kind of interesting that that word, because when we think of like money, even if we lost money, um, you can remake it, make it, I guess, you know. So um, it's not necessarily, it's a commodity that comes and goes, whereas time it's only one way. You can't buy up more of <laughs> more time, but you buy or redeem the time that you have and the season that you're in. And, and really the season, as we think about, and what Paul's really talking about is this time that we have here on earth. Um, you know, that time aspect is a, as we know, is a limited commodity. Um, just even, you know, um, this week, uh, a coworker of mine, uh, went to, you know, was complaining of pain, went to the hospital. He actually was complaining about a month ago of, like, pain in his shoulder, and then he had some pain in his stomach, and they said, you know, we're going to remove your gallbladder. When they went in to remove his gallbladder, they found cancer. It was pancreatic cancer, and this is, like, just a little bit over a week ago. Um, it rapidly deteriorated. They're hoping they could start chemo, but couldn't. Yesterday morning, he passed away at 845. And so, um, you know, so it's just one of those things that, like, you know, like, you, you just think, and you know, right? Um, you know, last week we were having lunch together, and, and then this next week kind of things kind of rapidly deteriorate. But that's, that's just kind of, again, a reminder of, like, the time that we've been given is sometimes we don't know the time that we've been given. Um, the Lord has other plans for us, and so how we use our time is important because during the time that we have, we have choices that we have to make. And so Paul says, when we have the time that we've been given, we need to be wise in the time that we have. And so we ended last week with looking at um, a parallel between verses 17 and 18, 
And so there was a parallel with not being foolish, um, meaning there's a connection with what Paul was saying is don't be foolish and also not getting drunk with wine. We looked at that kind of that idea as a specific, you know, easy way to look at someone when they are drunk with wine, they are exhibiting outward foolish behaviors. People can spot that, can know that, um, can see that. And so this is just one example, right, um, of what that means to be foolish. He's already ex- he named a few things that are foolish, but this is one way that would have been common in his society, his day, as well as ours. And then also, right, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. So understanding the will of the Lord is, has a parallel with, instead of getting drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So understanding the will of the Lord and being filled with the Holy Spirit, have kind of a connection, right, with one another. So how do we understand what God wants us to do? One way is to be filled of the Holy Spirit. And by being full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will guide us to, to, to do what the will of the Lord is. So sometimes, you know, those things go hand in hand, right? God wants us to know how we should live on this earth, right? And so... Why waste our time on this earth, um, going back to what Paul says, is redeeming the time when we can do what the Lord desires, right? The Old Testament, especially with the Proverbs, and I kind of mentioned this last week, we will get a whole bunch of Proverbs, but I didn't plan to just for sake of time, but, you know, he, you know Solomon and the other authors of Proverbs were praising the wise and admonishing the fool. And so here in Ephesians 5, you kind of have an echo of, of the similar, um, you know, uh, teaching that Paul has to the church, right? And he's given a couple specific ways uh, that people were walking unwisely. And so he mentions them twice earlier in the paragraph, right? And the unwise, unwise ways to walk were sexual immorality, impureness, coarse language, and he adds on kind of drunkenness as an example. So these were things, again, that were a part of their society that we talked about, you know, even as believers, if they were the part of like what we um, esteem or make a part of our life, right? That is, we are more like the culture than more like Christ. And how Paul described that is that it is darkness. We are to be a light amidst the darkness because those are things that are a part of human desires, human fleshliness, human sin, and we are to take no part in these things, right? They're unwise because, you know, one, they destroy our testimony. Um, they do cause us to sin and to stumble. Uh, and then they also disable our ability to discern the will of God, right? So when our, our judgment is clouded by sin, we can't know what this, the will of the Lord is. Or we twist what the will of the Lord is, again, to meet those ends, We're no longer beacons of light, but we're covered in darkness. And these things that kind of Paul talks about, right, that he kind of just mentions, um, they're not like single sins. It wasn't like, I got drunk once, and then, like, I'll never do that again. And Paul's, like, admonishing, you know, how could you get drunk that even once, right? He's talking about sins that that, um, people are tempted by and entertain as a part of their lifestyle, right? Um, coarse language. Again, it's not a, something that like just slips and it's not something you know, that happened once. It's a part of like your everyday language. And again, we went into details about this um, last week and looked at these sins and how they are kind of all-encompassing, all-covering. But that's, those are the things that Paul wants us to understand, right? They're habits and they're the go-to sins that people will go to, again, either to escape or to avoid you know, something in their lives um, that need to be, again, directly looked at. But thankfully, like, Paul doesn't just leave us hanging there with, like, hey, don't do these things. Instead, he gives us, again, the positive. That's a, even, remember how he started um, the beginning of chapter 5? Because what does he say, verse 1 of chapter 5, if you guys see that? What, was, what does it say? Right, be imitators of God, right? Like, we have as our, as our paradigm... Um, who we should be looking at, we should be looking at Christ, and that is our goal, right? But again, what do we, what do we aim for and what do we, you know, move away from? And so both of those things are what we have our eyes 
forward to or the things that we're hopefully turning our back towards. If our eyes are going towards the things that uh, we shouldn't be going to, we need to turn our eyes back towards Christ. And that's how we, you know, um, end up walking wisely. And so he provides us some wise ways to walk, right? He says, discern what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit. We've mentioned those again, parallel ideas. And then finally in verse 19, which is where we find ourselves, um, he says, address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that, that idea of addressing is really speaking to one another. Um, so is this about, you know, what is this about? It's like we need more music in our lives. What's, what is this saying? When he said that we should address or speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Okay, so reminding one another of, would you say of spiritual principles? Okay. True, yes, definitely, definitely. What else, what else do we see here? What's that? Don't be a grouch. How do you pull that away from here? What do you have a positive attitude? Okay, okay. Contrasting not to be drunk of wine and dissipated mind, but be filled with the Spirit. I think from that comes all those things. You know, just a joyful attitude, edifying speech, encouraging one another, being thankful. Yeah, and, and I mean, you, you get a sense, right, when you think of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right, like there is kind of a positive aspect of these things, um, of, of what they're there for. I mean, so specifically hymns and spiritual songs, what's the, what's the purpose of hymns and spiritual songs? Okay, so worship, right? And so worship is designed to do what? Okay, so give glory to God, and the content, right, of those songs is what? God's truth. Yeah. So, revealed truth, sung in corporate, you know, um, you know, in unity with one another to give worship and glory to God. Psalms are similar, right, is, and thought about in um, that they were, you know, corporately kind of sung together. And so this idea is, again, that there is this praise and joy, this future, right? We even think about, and we'll look at this, you know, when we get to it, um, in the future in Revelation, we see that when we are corporately together, we'll be praising and singing, right, to God our Father without any sort of hindrances. We won't have the distractions <laughs> that sometimes happen. We won't have the, you know, the noises around us or even the, the thinking in our head um, of all of these things. And so how do we speak to one another these things is drawing upon these truths, but the way, again, and a reminder, right, when we speak in these truths of a reminder of our corporate aspect, but also not only of our corporate aspect, but of our purpose of worship to God. And it's interesting, I kind of thought like, you know, Paul doesn't say anything about the law in here, right? Um, while, you know, Proverbs and even, you know, um, a lot of the Psalms will talk about meditating on the law. So we even have like that as like part of that. It doesn't speak about necessarily about the law. And I think some of it is just like the law, right, is meant to condemn and convict of sin, where Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are to uplift and encourage. So again, that's like that. There's no place in that. But Paul's saying, how do you, how are you filled with the spirit? Be filled, be lifted up with the spirit through these ways. And so it might mean having a little more music in your life in that, in that response, but it's the idea of the content and the way that we speak to one another, encourage one another. Plus, what's the other idea about song? Like, that seems to be kind of universal. Like, why are people, like, drawn to music? I don't know why people are drawn to music. Yeah, maybe not the right way to ask it, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm talking more for my wife, okay? And uh, you're there, you're at home, and my wife turns on that music, hymns, and we play it a lot. She plays it a 
but when it comes calm and comfort and encouragement, then it's worship. Does it does it end there though? Because what's the thing about right music and the way that songs are built is they become memorable, right? They become kind of ingrained within us where you can maybe be walking and you have like a tune in your head. Sometimes it's like the wrong tune in your head or a commercial or whatever, right? You know, but the whole idea, right? You know, I mean, it's funny, like there are certain verses that when we listen to certain uh, verses that were set to song, um, that like as soon as like that verse starts going, like, the kids will start singing it. We had a Bible teacher that um, at our school that would play his guitar, and it was funny. I don't remember like every once in a while, like a kid will start either start saying something about this verse, and then like you'll see like because even if they're different ages, they've heard the same song taught by this teacher. They'll and I haven't heard it because it's like his own personal one, and I wasn't in the class. But they'll all start singing the song, right? Because like it becomes memorable and ingrained in someone's heart. Yeah. They all Yeah. And sometimes they'll stop playing the music and they'll just listen to the crowd all singing together and it's like, right, this kind of idea. That's the point, right? That's the point of what Paul's Paul's getting at when he's talking about these things. So it is like a way to again to be filled with the spirit, but also filled in a collective sense with, with one another. Yeah. Charles Wesley, because of the hymn you that stick with us, is a really powerful teaching and reminding and connecting generations of people together. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so, right, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14 26, Paul says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Right, so even even there, he says, if you have a hymn or a lesson or a revelation or even you know these spiritual gifts that he's talking about, and that's the context of what he's talking about, right? Whatever it is that you do, like the whole point of these things are to build one another up, and so that's that's the purpose of hymns, and that should be what the goal of the hymn is, hymn writer is, and uh, even when we sing together, that's why we do that. Um, and then again. Paul being in prison, writing this letter, just kind of makes me even think, and I, I had mentioned that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple of the verses from when Paul and, and Silas were in Ephesus and they were in jail, and uh, they were in chains, right? I'll, I'll read verses, uh, Acts 16, 23, you kind of get the idea. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, meaning like the, um, those that had arrested them, uh, Paul and Silas, They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fashioned their feet in in the stocks. Um, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Not saying that, like, because they were singing these hymns, but it was just kind of interesting that they were singing these hymns even having their feet in stocks, right? And so instead of, like, dwelling on, like, their situation, they were singing to the Lord in spite of their situation. And what did everybody in the jail do? They were listening. <laughs> and then when this miraculous thing happens, right, they went, they, you know, the jailer looked to Paul, or actually... Paul intervened so the jailer didn't kill himself, but looked to them as somebody as a bearer of truth and understanding. So, right, in all of these, we have the truth of God, and to be united, we need to speak the truth of God to one another, and we've kind of covered all those ways that we can do this. So, again, these things start internally and then move, our, move their way outwardly. So, when Paul says, be careful how you walk, right, starts again with the mind and the heart and the things that we're dwelling on to be able to then walk our way. It's hard to kind of like have that attitude and then dwell 
in these sins that Paul um, had described earlier. And then verse 20, what does this building up lead to? In addition to how we you know, communicate with one another and, and the ways that we do that, what, is, what does this also lead to? Yeah. So he says, giving thanks, right, for everything, for everything. So the good and the bad, if you're free or maybe even if you're in jail, right, Paul says to give thanks to everything. And then finally, what does um, Paul say is our path to walking wisely and being unified in the body of Christ? Verse 21. Yeah. And he says, submitting to one another. Now, do we do that submission on our own behalf? Because he even describes that in the verse. Yeah. So fear or, or reverence for Christ. So it's not because on our own behalf, right, that we submit to one another. It's on Christ's behalf that we submit to one another. It's almost, um, right, if we try to... <laughs> When it's easy to submit, we can, we can readily and heartily submit on our own behalf, but it's the points that it's hard to submit that we need to not submit on our own you know, desire, but on Christ's desire. And so, again, this three-kind-of-part plan of walking wisely is communicating these truths in uplifting ways, giving thanks at all times, and finally, when it comes to harmony, is submitting to one another. Um, these things are what will help us, allow us to do the will of the Lord and discern the will of the Lord. So why do you think Paul will take the next 20 verses um, elaborating on this idea of submitting to one another? Because that's where we're going to turn our attention. Because we do that really easily. Because we do that really easily. And so he... He's like, because you do it so well, let's just, you know, talk about what you do so well. So, it's because our idea of, of what it means to submit to one another needs to be spelled out. Otherwise, we'll twist it to our own ends if we aren't clear. And that's kind of, again, the, the, the hard part. So, <clears throat> Paul's going to start with the, the basic family structure is the married couple. Um, you know, the, the husband and wife might spend... The, most of their time together in their lives, and so as believers, they need to be united. Um, there might be at times conflict in the home, perhaps. And so Paul, Paul goes here first trying to address these things. So we're going to read kind of a few verses at a time and, and unpack this a little bit. Um, all right, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so what is the motivation for a wife's submission to her husband? Okay. So that's one of like un- the understanding of that position, what Paul, what Paul goes into. But right, what's, the, what's again like why a wife should submit to her husband? Is it because Paul says so? Okay, to honor him, and that's true. 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 Right, but, but just simply... Right, what? Don't you think it would have been a, there would have been a lot of theological issues that would have been satisfied if he had taken the first line, wives submit to your husbands, of 22, and then added the first line of 25 that said, husbands love your wives, and then gone on with his explanation because so many people pull that out and they forget to go down to the next several verses that say, oh, men, don't forget. This is not. Yeah, well, you know, we, we like to pick and choose what suits our, our own ends and our own, our own motivations. Yeah. So again, just kind of echoing, and we'll get to some of the things that you guys have all, have all said in just a second, right? The, the why behind why we do it. But what the, the motivation, again, 
is to not please her husband because, you know, he's a nice guy or you made these vows or, or anything like that, right? The idea is that you're, you're, the wives are submitting to their husbands as to the Lord because it is pleasing to the Lord, right? Um, it's not because of her own desire uh, because when it comes to submission, submission is not always done when it's, you know, to your own ends. Even the whole submitting to one another um, out of reverence to Christ is, you know, what which was said before, is that we all need to submit, and we're going to see that in different aspects and capacities. And it's not because, you know, it's the right thing to do, but because it's what the Lord deems as right. And it pleases the Lord in this idea of submission, because, again, um, you know, Sometimes what we want isn't always what's best. Um, and often that's true depending on the situation. And so, uh, you know, so Paul kind of reminds wives of this, right? It is the, is the Lord that we all submit to. And so Paul kind of uses that as like a reminder for why wives should submit to their husbands. Now, the question is, so why did God make it so, why is it that the wives submit to their husbands? And so that's again, leads us to kind of what Paul says is the description of why that is so. So what is that, why is the, what's the why behind that? Okay. Right. So there's a fundamental structure <clears throat> that is even incorporated within the body of Christ. And so, again, he's speaking to the body of Christ. And in, in the body of Christ, right, he's using kind of language as like the body of Christ you know, and we'll get to this in a second, kind of submits to the Lord, <clears throat> then wives should submit to their husband because in any sort of, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say organization, but I guess you could say it that way, the husbands or wives are kind of like, again, the primary like organization, that there is a sense of a role and structure and there's a necessary leadership um, in that. And so because of those things, like there's going to be conflict uh, at times that one has to have um, the, I guess, I would say, you know, finality in what needs to be said. And so Christ says that wives should submit to their husbands and, and in that way. But there are times, right, that husbands will submit or defer to his wife. So it's not in like every situation in every way, but it's, you know, if like there's a decision that needs to be made and it's, well, leaning one way or another, then Christ says that it's the husbands that are to make that decision. And that idea of, of submission is, you know, can be also translated as subordination and not the, the idea comes from a clear or distinct group where one comes under the other. And so there's, again, just a role that is laid out um, in order to do that. So why, again, is it important to have leadership in a society that has order and structure? Chaos. Okay. You went, you went to like full bore, like, right, so it's like pandemonium, right? So, right, so that, that, that is like, again, kind of the, the idea. But when you go to, you know, um, when there is like a sense of structure and leadership um, and authority, what does that also give to the society? Yeah, so there's stability and there's safety, right? And so... Um, 
Likewise, when a person is given authority, what also comes along with authority? Responsibility. Responsibility. Hey, that's exactly what I have, right? So, yeah. And so all of those things are kind of packaged in there, right? If it's not, like, spelled out, then there becomes, like, ambiguity. And when there's ambiguity, right, there's more conflict. And so, again, Paul is just saying this is the order that God has, has de- deemed. And we're modeling that within the Godhead. Christ submitted joyfully and willfully. Now, it wasn't his desire to go to the cross, right? But he said, you know, if your will be done, and that is the structure. And so for us, we understand, again, what that looks like in order to do so. And so um, and instead of having each couple, when they come together, define, well, who's, who's going to be the head um, in this marriage? Paul is laying it out that the husband is the head and the authority, but also not only that comes with structure, right, but it comes with responsibility. And so Paul, again, outlines that and says the church submits to Christ as our example. So what would it look like if this were not the case? What would it look like if the church didn't submit to Christ? Which almost seems like a foreign concept, right? But there'd be no church, okay? So if the church wasn't here to, like, honor and glorify Christ and to submit to the will of Christ, is it a church? (laughs) You know, so it's just a group of people that are an arrangement of some sort of convenience, right? And so Paul says, similarly, that's, again, you know, how it looks in in a marriage. When a wife does not submit to her husband, it's really not a marriage. It might be one legally, but it's, again, not a partnership that, um, Paul is outlining and saying that the Lord desires. So, um, you know, again, if a wife is holding back in submission in a particular area, she's walking unwisely and being disobedient to the Lord. So we kind of, Paul starts there, and then he switches and says, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So what is the command for husbands? Love your wives. Love your wives. Okay, so pretty, pretty simple. Now, is that any different from the command, right, that every person is given to love his or her neighbor? Yes. Fundamentally, it's the same thing. Okay, so on the surface, right, we're all told to love one another. And so the same command for husbands is the same that it would be to any other one. But it seems like that it's said in a different way, in a different, you know, manner of kind of almost pressing, a, you know, upon home because they're your neighbor, right? Your, your wife is your closest neighbor. So it's not anything unique, but for, for as we know, you know, even I guess is the, the cliche says familiarity can breed contempt that Paul wants, you know, like, goes into greater detail with what that means, right? So it's like, yeah, we're all supposed to love one another. But Paul, again, explains a little bit more about what that type of love looks like within the marriage relationship. And so he kind of talks about the elevated nature of the marriage relationship when he goes to talking about how Christ has loved the church, right? So me and you... This is, what did, what did Christ do? What are the things that he, he did that Paul describes? Okay, so he sacrificially laid his life out for the church, okay? That was one thing. Going beyond that, right, what else did he do? Okay, sanctify. But again, if you kind of think, like, I mean, I'm just, uh, mood, it's, it was really... It was really interesting um, uh, in a play, I don't know if you know what this will look like, but for a play at Ruby School, um, I guess the school that I teach at, 
<laughs> but I don't teach in the elementary, is uh, they're doing an Easter play, and I'm playing Jesus. And so they have, as this one thing, is they wanted to, uh, which I feel is like a like weird thing to do, but, I mean, is, is um, they're doing this, this foot washing, so I had to go and practice, like, washing these fourth and fifth graders' feet. So I walk in there, and they all have their shoes off, and there's a bowl of water. And so, like, oh, so you want me to wash their feet? And so, but it kind of brought, like, the gravity of what that, you know, that whole idea of, you know, before Christ is going to lay his life down for him, what did he do? He, yeah, he served them. He washed their feet. Like, again, like, one of the, the lowest things for someone to do is to wash the dirt off of their feet. And, and it's, it's that idea that he didn't just sacrifice himself, like put himself on the cross and it was a external thing, which was true. It was, but then like each one of us cleansed us of our sins, like of every time that we turned our back on Christ or used his name in vain, or all of the things, right? The things that Paul has just described, this immorality and impureness and debauchery and coarse language, like Christ cleanses us from those things, right? Like, you know, you want to just say, like, love your neighbor, right? You know, if, like, bring them cookies, like, every once in a while. Or, like, return their lawnmower if you borrow it. Um, like, loving your neighbor goes beyond that. Loving your wife is, like, each and every day, day in and day out, when conflict is there, when that arises, is not only to sacrifice and give up the things, but then even go the step further of, like, forgiving of all of those things, right? It's, it's not only just, like, coexisting, but even, like, embracing and cleansing and being a part of, like, what that looks like um, when Paul you know, is describing Christ in his example for the church. Um, you know, again, uh, husbands are to love, sacrifice, and to work at building up their wives. So what connection does Paul make um, in, to a husband loving his wife in verse 28? Yeah. It's almost like Paul like understands, right, <laughs> that each one of us we we love ourselves, right? You even think like, what are the things you did this morning to make yourself presentable today? Um, you know, maybe it's cuz you love each other, right? But you like are concerned, right? You wash yourself, you brush your teeth, you do all those things, right? Cuz um you you know, you care for yourself. And so Paul, like, leverages, again, a little bit of, like, that, maybe even that vanity um, that we each have or tend to even gravitate towards and says, like, that same idea needs to be to your wife, right? You're, you're loving your wife as much as you love yourself. And so, you know, why, you know, I guess, I guess you know, when you think about that, he says... Um, Uh, he who loves his wife loves himself. What do you think is meant by that? So you ha- I had the idea that like he should love his wife as he loves himself, but Paul says he who loves his wife loves himself. Okay. Yeah, and that's kind of a little bit of idealism, right? Um, but not only that is is again like because there's that oneness, right? Paul describes it as a mystery, um, but even more so, right? When when you love your wife, there is actually like an external reflection back on the husband. Um, 
you know, what does the Proverbs 31 woman say about, you know, the husband? You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? Praised it, praised it the gate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he's like, right, the husband's like, that's my wife over there, right? And so, this, again, it's that idea that the love a husband has for his wife is even reflected outwardly, right? It is this idea that there is a corporate, you know, oneness, right? So loving your wife as, when you love your wife, you love yourself as a, because you are connected. But there is also, like, when you love your wife, you love yourself, that there is a reciprocation. And so... Um, Paul, again, kind of uses that ideas uh, for that. And so, um, so husbands, you know, we need to kind of pause and say, what are ways are we not loving our wives, particularly in ways we love ourselves? Um, I'm reminded <laughs> often, uh, like, oh, uh, do you think any of us would want a slice of cake or a bowl of ice cream? And I'm like, well, maybe you do. I should have asked, shouldn't I? Um, so you think after 18 years of marriage, I would have been trained well, but um, still working on that. What's that? You're a rookie. You're a rookie. <laughs> it's a lifetime training. A lifetime training. Yes. What year do you just get it? <laughs> still, still. Boy, oh boy. Okay. So, anyway. So then Paul kind of then unites these two ideas together. Verse 31, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh, or become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we see again both Husband and wives are in partnership together. Even like, again, the leaving of the, the father and mother is like something that each husband and wife does together. They're there to support each other. The husband steps up and the wife faithfully supports. And so, um, so there's a lot more that we could say. We could spend a whole hour, we could spend a whole like marriage conference talking about these verses and going more in depth. But again, it wants to kind of pull back and think again, so Paul is like saying, like, you want to understand what it means to submit to one another. You want to understand what it means to be united. Let's start with, like, husbands and wives and go there. We're going to go a little bit further because I want to kind of finish this idea of Paul then moving on to the next kind of unit of structure in society is the family. All right, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so what are children to do? Obey. What's that? Submit. Submit. Yeah, similar idea. And so this idea is kind of listen under. And so... Not kind of this idea of a distinct group being under as like the subordination, but it's almost like this idea of like listening under. And so there's this training aspect of thinking with that, you know, here with an understanding of what your place is. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, Paul's writing a letter and, you know, is it the letter to, I mean, it's to the whole church, which includes children, but it kind of is like, well, who's getting the message, and how is that message being, you know, passed on? So there's two things. One, you know, as a child, you're always a child of your parents, no matter if you're young or old, and so there's kind of that one idea, but it's also, again, the understanding of what you will grow into and how then you as a father should train your children to the structure that should be there. And so he says one thing, particularly, he says parents, but particularly fathers, he says, what, um, what should you not do? What's that? Provoke yeah, provoke your children to anger. So why is that?
Yeah. Uh, most adults probably aren't either, but especially a child. And then, you know, the, you know, some children get angry, some children give up. It's kind of the same idea there. Okay. Yeah. So obviously Paul had teenagers because he... Yeah. he, he yeah. <laughs> so in Colossians, right, he said writing the same letter with similar thoughts, he says that, um, you know, do not... Uh, provoke them because they may become discouraged or the idea is dispirited or lose heart. Uh, that term can even also be even to anger, but he uses a different term that is more to anger in Ephesians. And so, again, you have this idea of, again, the, of being in this leadership role, right, of who the children look up to um, going you know, too far, right, can have a negative, even lasting effect in what that looks like. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and there's also like the heaviness of the authority usually rests with fathers, as far as like how fathers respond um, can be seen with uh, much more gravitas, and so that's that's that kind of the weight that even Paul like you know reminds fathers of. And what that looks like. Um, so instead of, and so, so that's kind of what the not to do, but then what are parents to do? Okay. Yeah, so we have this idea of discipline, which is training. Okay, so again, it's like the habits that need to be instilled in, in children. And so what are the parameters, what are the, you know, the areas that there is margin, what are the areas that, you know, there are boundaries, and then even the instruction, so this idea of counsel of what's right or wrong, sometimes even admonition of like, hey, that's wrong, you can't do that. Um, but all of that, again, under the foundation umbrella of this training, this instruction of what it means to follow the Lord and to submit unto the Lord, even the, again, parents have that ability to say, well, we don't do things or we do do things because, you know, we follow the Lord, right? There, you know, kids can look around and say, like, well, neighbors or kids at school or certain friends or whatever do things differently. Well, we don't do it that way because of the way that, you know, we are trying to glorify the Lord. So why... why do they need discipline and training and instruction? Because what? Because <laughs> they're fools, yeah. All right, that's good. So, right, they need to know. <laughs> they need to know, right, because it doesn't, it doesn't come naturally, right? The natural state is the fool. And so that's why even in Proverbs is like, seek out after wisdom, because you have to seek wisdom. Wisdom just doesn't find you. Um, because you're often ignoring wisdom. Wisdom has to shout out, you know, to the streets. And where are you? You're, you know, off chasing your own desires. You're off chasing and scheming with your friends of all the, the trouble that you can get into. And so those are the things that, you know, again, need to be, um, to be done. These are all, again, ongoing practices, not one-time things. You don't submit once and respect once or love once or train once. Or instruct once, right? These are all lifelong habits. And then finally, Paul moves on to the last kind of unit of society. He talks about slaves and masters. And again, while that's kind of like maybe the extreme side of that relationship, um, we can glean what that looks like even kind of in a working relationship because he does talk about in the context of whether you're slave or free. So there are things that we can draw upon here. So he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So, how should bond servants act? Okay. Yeah, he says obey, right? Same word that children are to obey their parents. Again, that structure in the relationship. And he even says with fear. That's how Paul 
um, finishes uh, chapter 5. He says, wives, respect. It's that same word, phobos, or fear, your husbands. But he adds with this, this idea of, you know, this fear is understanding um, the role and authority uh, with bondservants, specifically those that are slaves, um, with fear and trembling. And that word is tremo or tremor. Uh, and again, the idea is that someone who has total authority over you um, is someone how you should serve reverently, um, knowing, again, their role, that role being further than even a role of like someone who is free. So what do you think the, the problem that Paul is addressing here? As you think like a you know, slave and master relationship, right? That the slave knows his or her place and the master knows what, how he should treat a slave. But particularly on the slave aspect, what do you think the problem that Paul is addressing? Well, it's, it's interesting, in, you know, in the, the book of uh, Philemon, you guys know, uh, you know, there was a slave Onesimus. Um, you remember, if you, if you remember that letter, um, what Paul is writing about, or what, what was the situation with Onesimus? He ran away. Yeah. So, a slave who ran away, does it mean he, like, enjoyed his position <laughs> in the church? And this could even color some of a little bit, I can't remember when... Uh, Philemon was, was written, if that was uh, also written at that time. Um, but, you know, when Paul was, uh, is, is addressing these things, right, it's, it's almost with the thought that, like, slaves knew their place and that was it. I mean, masters might assume, like, right, slaves are grateful for, you know, the things that the master provides. But the reality is, is a slave doesn't necessarily like being a slave. You probably think that most slaves did not like being a slave, no matter what, whether they were slaves by possession um, or slaves by, uh, you know, um, indebtedness, um, meaning for a certain period of time, um, which is kind of more on the idea of bondservant. But, uh, you know, again, right, is when, is, is how the people are, you know, in their hearts are not understanding again this is your your this is the place that you're in at the time that you're in <clears throat> and so Christ says you need to submit to the understanding of what that looks like so what does it look like when we don't like <laughs> the position that we are currently finding ourselves in and we'll even say like let's let's talk about for maybe the application for us like even in like the workplace. So I hear grumbling. What's that? Grumbling against where God has you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So right, but we can find ourselves even even with like the the jobs or the you know positions that we've chosen. You know, we've applied for a position, we got hired for the job, and we still can find ourselves complaining. Um, you know, some people do the bare minimum, right? Well, I'm not, it's not my part of my job. Um, you know, uh, that's not in my job description. Um, there's a lot of things like how that manifests themselves, and especially that happens when, you know, when the boss isn't around, so then Paul kind of like addresses that idea. How do people usually act when their bosses are around? <laughs> Instead of complaining, what do they what do they usually say? What's that? Yeah. Have you guys ever witnessed that happening? <laughs> um, I mean, it happens. It happens all the time. Uh, is that like you're with a group of people and the boss walks in and like you're like, wait a minute, did something? <laughs> you know, this person's a person. So, um, what's that? Yeah. 
<laughs> when you observe, when, when, when you come in, when a, teach, a principal comes in for observation, yeah, they're like, do your best lesson. And you're like, well, then is this really like the, you know, the best way? Everyone's going to, yeah. And it's weird too that students, oddly though, <laughs> oddly though, and I've never done that because I'm like, honestly, like if I'm failing in something, it should like be pointed out. But students even know that. They'll be like, it's for you, Mr. Laws. It was like, what? <laughs> like, they know, right? You know, and so, um, anyway. I would say I have, a t- I have a tough time with this, but um, maybe I shouldn't. So, um, was, uh, and so, yeah, he even points out that idea of eye service, like, how does it look, or people pleasers, um, right? Instead of complaining, it could be like, you know, again, like, hey, that's great, or encouraging, or I felt like what you said was, like, you know, amazing, um, Instead of doing the bare minimum, like making it look like you do more than you actually do um, when people are around. And again, you know, how does that look? And so Paul's just saying like, you know, how, how, how is so then how should one act? <clears throat> yeah, he says, right, doing, doing the will of God from the heart, like this is where you're at. And so understand that the Lord has you there. It might not be like the place like you desire, but this is where you're at. And so accept it and rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. And that idea of a good will is favor or affection or a kindly supportive feeling. It's almost like get your heart into it, right? <laughs> like just not only just accept it, but not accept it with drudgery, but accept it like, well, this is the Lord where the Lord has me. So how can I be, you know, the best worker in my position where the Lord has me at this moment. So say it and mean it, or maybe just don't say it at all. Um, In Colossians, he says, work heartily and not to worry if there is any wrongdoing against you. Right? So that happened even in Paul's time, probably even more so. And so he then, after that, right, kind of enduring any sort of heart, you know, uh, hardship, he says that there is a reward for good work in verse 8. In Colossians, he specifically lays it out and says, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And so it might be earthly, but it will definitely be heavenly. And so, again, even those that probably sustain the most um, abuse and are able to do it unto the Lord, I think will have a greater reward by Christ, because you're not doing it for that person to please them, you're doing it to please God. And then he kind of finishes off with masters. So how should masters respond? Yeah, and, right, and again, this is to believers who are masters. That's, this is the idea, right? You guys have the same Lord, so you should treat them similarly. And what is also says not to do? Threaten them. And so a little bit different than children, but kind of similar to fathers. Um, <clears throat> Colossians says, treat them justly and fairly because you have a master in heaven. So don't threaten them because, right, well, how else am I going to do the, get them to do the work that they need to do is treat them justly and fairly. And so that's the way you should treat them, not as in a threatening manner, even if that's how other masters are treating their slaves. So to kind of wrap it up, I know we went a little bit over time, but we did finish today. And so we, you know, when Paul kind of steps back, think, you know, how are we, um, how are we walking uh, under the Lord? and discerning what the will of the Lord is, and how are we submitting not only to the Lord, but to one another. And all of those things kind of come in together, and if we're able to do that within our families, our marriages, our families, and our workplaces, it kind of spills over as like, this is how you do it within the church, right? The church is just an extension of all of those things, is a collection of all of those groups of husbands and wives and children and masters and slaves and all of these people kind of brought together being submitted under Christ. And all of those things are a reflection of the order and the structure that God desires 
and it can have a, again, a effect that is winsome to a world in darkness as a light in the culture. So, finish there. Any uh, thoughts, questions?